And we've been making our way through this as we have been looking at the, the beginning of Solomon's reign. And we've been looking at Solomon's reign in relationship to the promises that God had given to David. And I would encourage you, if there's one scripture passage that you commit to memory, even if it's just the reference itself, is 2 Kings, second, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, really verses 10 through, I think, 15. And, and that really speaks to, or you can actually back it up to verse 8 through 15, and that gives the whole context. But it's just God's way of encouraging David that upon his throne, that as long as he, was, he continued, he, David, and his sons, as long as they continued to obey the Lord and to be faithful, they would not cease to be a king on the throne, on the throne of Judah, and over all of Israel, actually. And we know that David had passed from the scene and Solomon came into his reign. And David, having provided everything for his son, all the materials that he needed for the, the temple to be built, because remember, the temple at this time uh, hadn't been built. In fact, all they had was the tabernacle. And the tabernacle went through many hundreds of years through, um, you know, through Israel's history, you know, 40 years in the desert. And finally, they parked it in Shiloh. And then, you know, from there, it, uh, it stayed there for quite a while and moved to a few other places. And then finally, you know, David, after the tabernacle, I'm sure, is just kind of falling apart. David decides when he comes into his reign, remember, one of the first things he does is he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, and then David made a covering or a tabernacle for the Ark of the Covenant. And it remained there in Zion, which is right to the south of the Temple Mount that you and I know today. It's called Zion, uh, and, and that's the, the city of David. And it was conquered by uh, David and Joab, which was his nephew. Remember, they conquered it from the Jebusites because the name of the town, the city, uh, was called Jabus. Uh, and that's where we get, you know, Jebusites. It was Jabus, but then it was renamed to Jerusalem, the city of God. And so now David, as he, his reign comes and goes, he's... The Ark of the Covenant, still in this tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David had it in his heart, remember, to build a house for God. And God was like, are you serious, David? You know, when have I ever asked to be in a temple? I'm the God who created the heavens and the earth and the universe, for that matter. I hold the universe in the span of my hand, and um, uh, the heaven of heavens can't even contain me. You don't need to build me a house, David, but I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll build you a house. And the house that he's talking about is his lineage. And ultimately it would find its summation in who? Jesus Christ. From David, you know, from, from Adam all the way down through, you know, um, you know, to Abraham. And then from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And then the 12 uh, sons of Jacob. And one specifically, Judah. And then finally going down through history, then finally to King David. And going further on into history, finally Joseph and Mary who were of that lineage of the tribe of Judah. And certainly Jesus is born through the line of Judah. And so now, God says, I'll make you a house. But you can't build it, David, because your hands are filled with blood. You're a warrior. But what I am going to do is I'm going to allow your son to build me a house. And he will have a time of peace. In fact, you remember me saying this, that this time during Solomon's reign was a golden era for Israel. Because they've never experienced uh, 40 years of what they experienced during Solomon's reign. In fact, they won't... Uh, experience this kind of thing until the millennial reign, which is yet future to us. Israel has always undergone, uh, they've undergone persecution. The Jewish people have always gone under persecution. Anti-Semitism, even today, is, is very high, very high. And so God is going to bring his very presence into Jerusalem. And he's going to rest there between the cherubim when Solomon builds this temple. 
And so David prepares it, and finally we get to this passage. And if you remember last time we were together, we looked at chapter 5, and this is where Hiram, who was the king of Tyre, he was also the king over, the, over Sidon, which is actually to the north of Israel, and in, in, in the, the place that you and I would call today Lebanon or Phoenicia. That was the area. But King Tyre had this wonderful relationship with Solomon's father, David. They had a confederacy. They, were, they, were, they saw eye to eye, and there was no problems between them. In fact, Hiram, the king of Tyre, he actually gave David all the lumber and all the materials to build his own palace and, and everything that David needed. And now we're going to see that after David passes from the scene, this same Hiram, this same man, sees in Solomon the same God who is over all, and he wants to help him too. And he's like, you know, Solomon, I was friends with your father. I gave him everything he needed, and now you're his son, and I see the hand of God upon you, and I, am going, I want to help in this endeavor, and whatever you need. And Solomon sent, and his men worked with Hiram's men. And they developed a system of floating logs, cypress and um, uh, logs in the Mediterranean, all the way down the coast, down to the area Joppa, which is right around Tel Aviv today. And then they would take those logs off the rafts, and they would load them onto mules or some kind of transit system, all across the, uh, going from... Uh, east to uh, or west to east uh, until they got to Jerusalem. And so Hiram did that. And so now we get to chapter 6, verse 1. And notice what it says. It says, It came to pass. And let's just read through the first 13 verses and then we'll go back. It says, It came to pass in the 400th and 80th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. In the month of Ziph, which is the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord. <clears throat> now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, its length was 60 cubits, its width 20, and its height 30 cubits. And the vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house. And the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And he made for the house windows with beveled frames." And against the wall of the temple, he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. And the lowest chamber was five cubits wide, the middle chamber was six cubits wide, and the third was seven cubits wide. For he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And the temple, when it was being built, was built with stone finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple, which is um, on the uh, south side, and they went up by stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third. And so he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar, and he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high, and they were attached to the, the temple with cedar beams. And then the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this temple which you are building, notice the conditional statement. I'm really big on conditional statements in the Bible because they're, they're, there's a condition attached to them. If, I, if you do this, then I will do this. And we'll talk about that more when we get. But notice, he says, If you walk in my statutes, executing my judgments, keep all my commandments, and walk in them, then I will perform my word which you, with you, excuse me, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. <clears throat> and so here God gives Solomon a, a warning and we're, you're going to find that as we go through this tonight that we're going to be touching on some passages that where God is warning. <clears throat> and God doesn't give warnings for no reason. There's a reason. God doesn't waste his breath. Anytime time in the scripture, whenever God repeats himself, it may seem to you like, why is he repeating this again? It's because of the severity of it. 
And so when God repeats himself, he, we better pay attention because he's trying to get something across to us. And re- repetition is how we learn. I mean, that's how we learned in school, isn't it? By repetition. Most people learn by repetition. You smack your hammer enough when you're a carpenter, by repetition, you learn not to do that again. So you get better at it, right, after your thumb nearly falls off, right? And so by repetition, he, he warns him. And for good reason. And why is that? Because God, remember, he's omniscient and he's omnipresent, which means he's in all places at once. He can't learn anything. He knows all things. He knows our very next breath. He knows what we're going to speak tomorrow at noon. He knows exactly. He could repeat to us and tell us where we would be, what we would be thinking if he so chose. And see, that's the God that we serve. He, he's all-knowing. It's not a problem for him. He doesn't even have to strain. It's not like you and I. We have to really think about it. And God, it's very natural for him. He doesn't even have to think. He doesn't have to work at it because he's almighty God. But he knows Solomon's heart. And he loves Solomon. Now let me ask you a question before we get into this. Knowing what we're going to find out about Solomon, how he had uh, got caught up in idolatry, which we're going to see very soon. Knowing that information, which God certainly did, why didn't God just deal with him from the very beginning? Well, he did. He warned him. Because God knew what was coming. And God makes sure that you and I are accountable to his word. And when he says something, he's saying it not because we don't understand, but because we need to know, we need to remember what he's saying. And several times God is going to say this, not only to David, but he's going to say it to Solomon as well. He's going to make him accountable because there's going to come a time where Solomon is going to, um, you know, he's going to reap what he sowed. Now God wasn't going to take away his mercy like he took away from Saul before David, his father. God, you know, allowed Saul to be destroyed in an army with the Philistines in a battle. But God wasn't going to do that with Solomon, but he was going to taste the, the repercussions of his choices. It was going to be a very, very bitter pill. But it wouldn't be until after Solomon that things really started to fall apart. And see, there's always a consequence for disobedience. There's always a consequence for rebellion. Always. It never goes well. And, and the, the, the scary thing is, is we get away with it for a time, and then we think God didn't see, that it's okay, that we're going to get away with it. But God has a perfect memory and we're not going to get away with it. You know, some of these men that are on, you know, um, you know I, I see stuff like this all the time. You know, where there's some mass murderer in Rochester, and he's, he's an old man, and there was all a suspicion about him that he was the guy who did all these murders, and he's gotten off scot-free because there's no evidence. And now, with technology, they do a DNA test, and they nail him to the wall. <laughs> they uncover everything, and now he's doing time in his last several years. He's spending the rest of his time in a jail, in a prison somewhere, and rightly so. But there are consequences, and God is making sure that Solomon, do you understand what I'm saying? If you continue to walk in my statutes and my judgments, then I will do this, then I will do this. But if you don't, you're going to be in trouble, Solomon. And we're going to see the whole nation fall apart after Solomon. And it really begins, and again, I, I, just, I love this period in their history because it's a period without turmoil. So notice in verse 1, again, it says, And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. Notice, and I, would, I put a star by this first verse. This is very important. In the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of Egypt, notice specifically in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, and even more specifically in the month of Ziv, which is the second month that he, Solomon, began to build the house of the Lord circle that whole entire verse if you have to put a star by it because this is one of those things you know and and verse 1 tells us the month and the year when the temple began construction and uh, again remember up to this time the children of Israel uh, since they had come out of Egypt they had only had the tabernacle but by, by this time it was in bad shape 
and, uh, and David had to build another tabernacle for the ark. But notice what it says in 2 Chronicles. You might want to put a footnote off to the verse 1 there and put 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 2. And the reason is, is because it gives us a little more information about when specifically this temple began to be built. And, and I love this because God didn't leave it to chance. He made sure that the, the exact time was known. And it says in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 2, And Solomon and he began to build on the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why am I making such a big deal of it? Well, because this is how we are able to determine the events in the Bible. Because once we have specific descriptors like this, and, and there's a number of them throughout the Bible, it is easier to build a timeline based on other events that occurred that have been dated in, unanimously, even in secular history. See, the Bible doesn't say this happened in 32 AD. Because honestly, all this stuff that we're talking about now didn't have a date assigned to it, really, until after Jesus was born. And then they started recalibrating time, didn't they? About when things happened. Why? Because of the, the birth of Christ. It was, you know, seven, you know, 586 B.C. when the, you know, Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem before Christ, right? So they know when Jesus was born, and they also started to relate to events as either before Christ or in the year of our Lord after he, after he was born. Do you follow me? And so by having these descriptors here in the Bible, and there's many of them, it's easy, even secular history, they keep track of dates. The Bible is not, it is a history book, but it's not just a history book. It's more than that. It's a book of redemption. It doesn't mean that you can't follow dates and, and, and put, a, put a timeline together. You can certainly do that. But, but you can go to outside sources to find that stuff very easily, and, and, and that we have. That we have. But notice, the house of the Lord, and then in, uh, in, in chapter 6 here, in verse 38, notice what it says, that it gives us the date that it was finished on. It gives us a specific date. You might want to put on verse 1, just put on uh, uh, verse 38, and, and then you can look at verse 38. It's at the very end of this chapter. So the first verse and the last verse give us the beginning, when, it was, when the, the temple began, and verse 38 gives us, it says, In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details and according to all its plans, so he was seven years in building it. And actually, it, seven years is a round number, but it was actually seven and a half years. Because it was in the first, in the second month, and now you're looking at the eighth, eighth month in the eleventh year or whatever, so you do the math, it's really seven years and six months, but they just round it to seven years. It does no big deal here. But if we think about this and, and why this is so wonderful, this verse, this very first verse, is that we know that Solomon, his reign began in nine seventy one BC. And so in the fourth year of his reign would be nine sixty seven BC, correct? And then if we go back 480 years, which is what it tells us in verse 1, then we give, with that date comes to 4, 1447 B.C. And that's the date. That's the hard date when Israel came out of Egypt. And so now everything in the Bible as you go through things, now you can start relating things to these things and building your timeline. And, and it's good to do that. As you become students of the Word, don't be afraid to do that. And take the Word at, a, at, its, uh, at face value and start doing these things. And, and you'll get a broader understanding of when things happen and how they happened. And it really helps you to put things into place. And that means then that if the Jews enjoyed, and, and when the temple was completed, because we know it took seven years, they enjoyed the completed temple from 960 BC until 586. A total of 374 years. That's all they had to enjoy that temple once it was completed. Because in 606, we know that Nebuchadnezzar came against it. And he sieged it for 20 years. Do you understand what a siege is? They, they just surround it and they try to starve them out. Get them to surrender. They don't attack them. They just build a siege all the way around it. And so he did that for 20 years. But then what happened in 586? He said, enough's enough. We're done here and we're going to torch this place. And that's exactly what he did. 
He took many Jews back to Babylon, three deportments of Jews, it tells us in Daniel and other places. Now look at verse 2. It says, Now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, notice dimensions, its length was 60 cubits and its width 20 cubits and its height 30 cubits. A cubit is about 18 inches. Usually they uh, develop the cubit from the elbow to the tip of the finger, but you know everybody's a little bit different. So it's roughly 18 inches. Uh, there's another cubit, which is about 21 inches. So we don't really know what cubit they're using, but we'll just stick with 18 because that's the common, uh, the common thing. So that, that means that the temple was 90 feet long it was 30 feet wide, if you do the math, and 45 feet high, according to the standard uh, cubit. And the Holy of Holies, which was only a third of that, so you had 60, was the, 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 the main part, the, the nave, if you will, the holy place. And then you had the Holy of Holies, which is a 30 by 30 cube. That was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was the only piece of furniture in there other than the cherubim that were over the Ark of the Covenant. And so notice now going on in verse 3, it says, The vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long across the width of the house, and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house. And Solomon made for the house windows with beveled frames, and against the wall of the temple he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around. And they would use these side chambers for uh, places for the priests to gather, for places of storage uh, and things of that nature. And they were all surrounding the, the, the main part of the, of the temple. So you had... Uh, the main, the Holy of Holies here, or the, the holy place, I'm sorry, where they would have the entrance here, and then you'd have the lampstands over on the left side, then the tables of showbread, and then right here you would have the altar of incense, and then there'd be a door, and then on the other side of that, a 30 by 30 cube of the Holy of Holies. Again, the only thing in there was the Ark of the Covenant and the two 15-foot um, gold cherubims with their wings touching, looking in on the mercy seat upon the temple. And so, and there was a vestibule in front of this thing where there was ascending steps, a very beautiful place, one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. And the inside of this, as we'll see, was glorious. It was completely filled. It was, it was, uh, they had uh, cedar and um, cypress. The whole thing was made of cedar. The outside was made of limestone. And, uh, and then cedar on the inside. And then they would overlay the cedar with, comp with sheets of gold hammered very thin. Because real gold is very malleable. And you can take a piece of real solid gold and you can break it and, and you, can, you can hammer it and you can hammer it out into a sheet. And that's what they did. And they hammered it out and smoothed it all out and affixed it to the cedar on the side of the walls. The floors, the ceiling, the sides of the wall, everything was gold. Think of how that might look. Walking into a room and all you see is solid gold all around you. And why is that? It's to, it's to show that, it's to be a reflection of God. The most precious thing that we have on earth, at least for most people, is gold. And yet God made this and he could care less about the gold. But we treasure that. And this, is, this, is, this is the best we got. So with the best that we have, we're going to build a house and we're going to worship God in this house, and it's the best. It is the best. It was the best that has ever been seen. Solomon's temple was amazing. And against the temple, he built chambers all around, against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary, and the inner sanctuary, which is the Holy of Holies, that 30 by 30 cube area where the Ark of the Covenant was. And thus he made side chambers all around. Verse 6, the lowest chamber was five cubits, and so there was three different levels. The, the very first one uh, had, a, had a, a span of, uh, of five cubits across. And then there was another chamber on top of that, the second chamber, the second level, if you will, all around this, uh, the nave of, of the temple. And, there would be, and then it would be uh, six cubits wide instead of five. And the third was seven cubits wide. So it was getting wider and wider, these rooms, as it went up. And there were 
Uh, and, and he made narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams would not be fastened into the walls of the temple. And the temple, verse 7, when it was built, was built with stone. Notice, I love verse 7, mark that, because, uh, and they finished the stone at the quarry uh, many, much farther away, so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while, while it was being built. So the materials of the temple were chiseled and made away from the temple mount. And, you know, you may wonder, why is this mentioned here? What's the significance? We know that God gave similar instruction when it came to building the altar. Remember for the temple or for the tabernacle? Remember what he said to Moses when they were just building the altar? When they were just building the altar in which they would offer sacrifices on, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24 It says this, An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And notice verse 25, And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. (laughs) You've profaned it. You've made it an abomination unless you make it simple. God didn't need anything ornate. See, all of the other gods, of the, the false gods, remember the, the, the god of the Assyrians, remember uh, a king went up there one time, I, 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 think it was, uh, I think it was Ahaz, I'm not sure, but he went up there to visit them and he was so enamored by the, how nicely they built everything that he came back and he, he decided he wanted to build an, an altar just like the one he saw. To a, that was to a false god. So in his heart, he's thinking, well, if this false god has this beautiful altar, then our god's going to have a nice altar, and it's going to be much better. <laughs> I don't blame him for his zeal, but he was completely wrong because God told him not to put any chisel to it, right? And, but even the building of the temple was to be built in consecration. It was to be holy, and it shouldn't surprise us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, what does God say to us through the Apostle Paul? He says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And so I believe that this is a type, that it, the type is what is important here. The type is what is important. And just as the temple was quietly being built somewhere else, and then when everybody would bring the materials and everything was fit and cut, and they would bring it and they would just put it in its place and there was heard no sound. It was the quiet. It was quiet on that temple mount while they were building it. And it makes you wonder, well, why? Why? Well, I'm going to give you my opinion of why. Because just as the temple was quietly being built, so too the Holy Spirit is quietly. If the Holy Spirit indwells us and we are the temple, did he come upon you like a gorilla? Did he come upon you and shake you violently and you fell to the ground and you, know, you gave all your money to the church? Was that really what happened to you like you see on TBN sometimes, these preachers? You know, be healed, and the, you know, and the, he raises the hand, and he gets it going, and he starts pointing his fan, and the guy falls down and wiggles and gives up the ghost, you know, or something, you know, something happens, and it's like, is that really the way it happened? It's not the way it happened to me. Was it dramatic? Yes, but was it peaceful? Did it break my heart? Was it in the inner part of me that I couldn't see? Yes, it was, and it was that way for you too. It just came, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, just comes upon you and just breaks your heart. And then you're finally, um, you know, just completely uh, blown away at God's holiness, you know, and what he has done. And so just as this temple was being built out of sight, out of mind, so too the Spirit of God. You know, didn't Jesus say the the Spirit comes and goes as he, you know, you don't know where he's coming and where he's going. And so is, is it for everyone who's born again. It's a mystery, isn't it? It's a mystery. And when the Holy Spirit of God is at work, there is gentleness, there's peace, and, there, and many other things as well. We, we read that list in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against there is no such law. You know, these things, it's peaceful, it's gentle. And even the construction of the temple, which in a, in a, in a picture we are as well, was done in the stillness, in the quiet. It was done with self-control. It was done very peaceably. And see, that's the type of, I believe, uh, based on the scripture, of why that was. It was a type. All these things have foreshadowed. In fact, types in the Bible are important because they establish a precedent that God is setting. A precedent that he's setting. And in fact, a, a just really quickly, a good example of that is when God, in, uh, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, he tells uh, Moses to strike the rock. Remember, they were thirsty and complaining. And so he says to him, Moses, take the rod that you rose to part the Red Sea, take that same rod, strike the rock, and water will come forth. Just simply do what I tell you to do. Don't worry about how hard you hit it. He could have really whacked it, or he could have just went up and just... And that water would have gushed, right? And so he did. He struck it once. But later on in Numbers chapter 20, remember, again, as they were traveling, that rock began, you know, they, uh, God, they started to complain again, so God tells them to Moses to go speak to the rock. Moses, just go speak to the rock and it will bring forth water. So what does he do? He does just the opposite. He's so mad at the people at this time, the people of God, he's so mad at this time. He's like, you rebels! And he grabs his staff and he whacks it twice, man. He just hits it and he hits it again. And, uh, and then God in his grace allows the water to come forth. He allows it. And why was that a big deal? And God told Moses, Moses, because you have done this, you will not go into the promised land. Why is that? Because he broke the type that God was trying to establish. And what do I mean by that? Jesus was struck once and for all, wasn't he? He wasn't struck twice. He was struck once. Once. And when Moses struck the second time, he broke the type, in a sense. And there was a consequence. There was ramifications for blowing that type. And you're not going to go into the promised land. You're going to see it. You can get up on the mountain and take a look around, but that's all you're going to get, Moses. I love you, and you're coming to glory with me, but there's a, there's a, a consequence for the sin of yours, your, the sin of anger. All I wanted you to do was speak to it, and you struck it twice. Christ was not struck twice. And in fact, in Corinthians, it says, now, and, and here's what it says in Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, Paul says to them, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, and he's speaking here of the Old Testament during the time of the Exodus, that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things have become our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, it's really interesting in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10 when it says, Now these things became examples. In the Greek, the word is typos, where we get our word type. It was a type. It was a, a foreshadowing, a, 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 a stamp, if you will. It was a, a resemblance, a sample of what was going to come. In fact, it was a type, uh, a, a person or a thing prefiguring a future messianic person or thing, which we know was Christ, as we read in 1 Corinthians. So it was all a type. And so types are important. And so when they had to create or to make this temple, it was quarried somewhere else and those materials were brought. And even in that, we see the type of just the Spirit of God doing things quietly and peacefully in which temple we are. And I love the peace that he gives us. And see, the more that we allow Christ to live in us and to, um, to rest in him, the better off we are going to be. But see, we create problems for ourselves when we um, we get distracted. We watch too much news. We do this or do that. And we find ourselves not really at peace anymore. And it's because we've got our eyes 
off of him and onto other things, so much so that these things are rattling our cages and he wants us to be right here where he can just speak peaceably to us. And that's something that we really need to take a look at today. Perhaps many of you are struggling with these kind of things. I know I struggle with these things. I'm no different than anybody else. I have my, my struggles and I get distracted. And, um, you know, it's something that we need to take a look at, though, because God would have us to have more peace than what we have right now, I believe. Much more peace. So many are so frazzled about politics and other things. And you know what? And, and let me just be honest. There, there are things to be concerned about. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that you stick your head in the sand and act like nothing's happening. No, you don't do that. But you can be aware and you can still have the peace. You just got to fill your head with the Word of God and not fill your head with all the other junk. And it is junk, by the way. It's junk. It's not going to do anything for you. Be aware, but take a light touch on that stuff because it's going to take your peace away and you're willing to give it away. Each of us willingly give our peace away. And it's time that we not do that, especially now. We need to be be centered. We need to have our anchor. Who is the anchor of our soul? Is it Fox News? God forbid. No, the anchor. <laughs> I got it on my shirt. Anchors and crosses. The anchor of my soul is Jesus and is your anchor as well. So let's act like that. Let's take him for what, he's, what he says. Lord, you're my anchor. But going in back into verse 8 now, it says the doorway, he's describing these different layers these different, these, uh, of these three stories. The doorway for the middle story was on the right side of the temple, and they went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle to the third. And so he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar, and he built side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high. And they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. This is about seven and a half feet uh, high and perhaps uh, around, that, around that height. And then the word, notice verse 11, the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building, notice the conditional statement, if, underline that, if, if you walk, if you walk in my statutes, if you execute my judgments, if you keep all my commandments and not only keep them, but walk in them, and then underline or circle this phrase, then I will perform. Is that a conditional or unconditional promise? It's conditional. Because there's a condition attached to it. If this, then that. See, when God makes promises, they're either one or the other. They're either conditional condition, or unconditional promises or when God tells David, David, this is what I'm going to do. Abraham, this is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to do it. There's no condition attached to it. This is what I'm going to do. It's just that simple. Regardless of your performance, this is what I'm going to do. But there are other things like this where he brings conditions. Then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father David, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. And, um, you know, when you think about these conditional promises, you know, I'm going to read these and you can write them down or you can listen to the recording later and, and write these down because I'm just going to go through them rather quickly, okay? But I would encourage you to write these things down because I had a ball going through and, and, and making this list for you because I was really enjoying it myself. But there was a, and, and really what the, these verses that I'm giving you, it, it really it, it gives even more accountability to not only David but to Solomon. So let's talk about just the promises that God gave to David concerning the temple, specifically in his son sitting on the temple. Of course, I've told you 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, that's the Davidic covenant, where he says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. And if, here it is again, notice, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. 
So there's certain parts of this promise that are conditional and certain that are unconditional. When God says, I'm going to establish your throne forever, that's a conditional promise. But there may be a time where your sons aren't sitting on the throne because of your rebellion. And that's certainly no. We know that through history that that's exactly what happened. Now, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, God speaks to Solomon concerning what God had just spoken to David. What I just read to you, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, David now speaks to Solomon privately and tells him these things, what God had told him. So now David's accountable, and now Solomon is accountable. And then it goes on in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, beginning in verse 7. Now David exhorts Solomon uh, privately again, to keep the Lord's commandments. And then in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 3, David now speaks to all the leaders of Israel with Solomon present the very same thing. Do you realize how often now this whole thing has been repeated? First God speaks to David. David speaks to Solomon. David speaks to Solomon again privately. And then David speaks to Solomon and all of Israel together and tells them the exact same thing. And why is it? I think God knew what was coming. (laughs) And again, he doesn't waste words. He told them, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. Ah, we heard it. We heard it the first time. God, that's okay. We got it, man. We got it written down. Been there, done that. I got the shirt. And God's like, no. (laughs) I'm going to tell you at least four or five more times, and you know what? You're still going to blow it. Because you're not dependent upon me. Because of your rebellious heart, you are going to fall away from me. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse uh, 3 through 7, uh, let me just get to verse 6 of that. Let me read something to you because, again, um, God knows what's coming. So in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 6, says, Now he said to me, and this is, um, this is David speaking to all the leaders of Israel. He says, now he said to me, speaking of God, God said to me, you guys, it is your son Solomon who shall build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son and I will be his father. Moreover, if, more, I'm sorry, excuse me, moreover, I will establish his kingdom forever. And if he is steadfast to observe my commandments and my judgments as it is this day, notice another condition. I will do this if he does this. And then God comes to Solomon specifically. We already read this in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. What did God say to him? And I'll just skip right to verse 14 of 1 Kings 3. He says, so if you walk in my way, Solomon, and this was the dream that God had given to Solomon when he was in Gibeon after he did all these sacrifices after his, after his coming into the, to the, his reign, God spoke to him and said in verse 14 of 1 Kings 3, if you walk in my ways, and I imagine Solomon's going, oh my gosh, I've heard this. Lord, why are you saying this to me? Don't you trust me? (laughs) And I can almost hear the Lord say, no, I don't trust in man. And neither should you. People think just because you're a Christian, you should trust everyone. Oh, I trust you. You're a Christian. You should trust me. Well, you're a criminal. Why should I trust you? You've already been busted three times for drugs and stealing. Why should I invite you into my house? I don't trust you. You're a Christian. You're supposed to trust me. No, trust is earned. I'm sorry. But then, so he says, if you walk in my ways to keep my statutes, my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. Well, David, well, Solomon's days weren't lengthened, were they? I don't even think he made it to his 70th birthday. God didn't lengthen his days because he didn't follow the Lord's commandments. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 9, it says, um, when, when the Lord spoke to Solomon a second time, he says, he built, so he built the temple and finished it, and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar, and he built the side chambers, etc., etc. Then verse 11, then the Lord Word of the Lord came to Solomon saying, concerning this temple which you are building, if you walk in my statutes again and keep my commandments, then I will perform my word. And it just continues to go on. And um, 
And finally, let's read um, 1 Kings chapter 9. And I want you to take specific... Note of the conditional phrases. First Kings nine verse one it says, and it came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon. Notice the second time, we already read it in First Kings three where he met him the first time. Now he meets him again the second time, and. He, as he appeared to him at Gibeon, and the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have, put, uh, which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there per- perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David did, in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I commanded you. And if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. As I promised David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods, and worship them, then I will cut off Israel. There's all kinds of conditional promises here. Then I will cut off Israel. And that's exactly, folks, what will happen and what is going to happen in Israel's history. And we know this because we, 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 we've, we've heard it. And Solomon is hearing it again. How many times has he heard this? I think God's trying to get his attention. Is God getting your attention about something? Has he told you? Have you been reading in the scripture and you come across a passage and you're like, oh, wow, I've heard that before. And it just kind of jumped off the page to me today. I wonder why that was. And then I was driving on my, in my car on the way to work and I heard it on the radio. The same verse was being read to me. There's something about this verse. And when you see and experience things like that, take note. And understand that God is trying to speak to you. He says, that Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. And he did that. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house. And then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God and brought their fathers out of, um, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all of this calamity upon them. And again, why is this such a big deal? Well, it's, again, it's accountability. God makes sure that we know the consequences ahead of time. He does this for at least two reasons. Number one, that we might choose to do good and not to do evil, thus obeying him. And secondly, that we won't incur the consequences of his wrath when we do. See, God is holy and there are consequences. He doesn't want you to have the consequences. He said, seek life, seek me and choose life rather than death. Seek life. Seek life. Very similarly, when the children of Israel were about to go into the promised land, you remember what God spoke to them. And this is another one of their unfortunate faults. And I, I don't mean to bring out their faults because we all have them. But they're written here for our learning. And if I learn from this, then praise the Lord. But notice what God says in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16. And this is something he told them in advance, and they didn't do it. And they reaped the consequences for it. But he told them... Before they came into the promised land by the hand of Joshua, he said, But of the cities of these peoples, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall, not, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, just as the Lord your God has commanded you. And why is that? Because lest They teach you to do according to all their abominations which they have done for their gods. And you sin against the Lord your God. (laughs) 
God gave them plenty of time to turn from their sin. Remember that in Genesis 15? God says, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. You're not going over there yet, but once it is full, I'm going to cause you, Moses, to come, or I'm going to cause someone, and he's speaking about Moses, then I will deliver your people when the iniquity of the Amorites was full. When it had gotten to the point where they were like beyond, God had had it, basically. He gave them hundreds of years to repent. They did not repent, and God says, okay, now there must come judgment. And he used his own people as the hammer of judgment against those seven nations that I just read to you, the Canaanites. And they dispossessed their land because of their sin. And God gave them everything that they had planted, all their vineyards, all their houses, all that stuff. He gave it to them. Why? Lest they do according to their abominations, which they have done. And this is why laws are so important to any society. People need to know where the boundaries are and what the consequences are for crossing that boundary. That's why we as parents, you know, with our kids... We have to do this for our kids. We have to place boundaries. That's why even local and federal governments have laws. They are boundaries. If you run through that red light, you're going to get a ticket. And if you do it enough, you're going to get your license revoked. And you won't be able to drive again. Those are laws meant for good. Because why? It's very simple, actually. If you go through the red light, you and somebody else could very well die because somebody else is going through a green light. Makes a lot of sense. So I obey the law, and I live. <laughs> and I'm, I've got much more money to be taxed with and give back to them. No, I'm just kidding. So, but even biblically, it makes sense. So, so Solomon finally, he builds this temple, and he finalized it. He finished it, and he built the inside of the, of the temple with cedar boards. And from the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the temple with planks of cypress. And then he built the 20-cubit room at the rear of the temple, which is uh, 30 feet, uh, from floor to ceiling with cedar boards, and he built it inside the inner sanctuary, which is the Holy of Holies, as the most holy place. And in front of the temple, sanctuary was 40 cubits long, or 60 feet long. So that's called the holy place. It's twice as long as the Holy of Holies. And so the inside of the temple was cedar, carved with ornamental buds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. Do you know what cedar smells like? Doesn't it smell beautiful when you have like a cedar chest? Think of a whole, a whole temple, limestone, already chiseled out. It's all perfect. And then on the inside, you got these paneled cedar walls and ceilings and floors and the, air, the, the aroma coming from that. And then they're going to overlay that with gold. Watch what happens. So the inner sanctuary... I'm sorry, excuse me. And he prepared the inner sanctuary, or the Holy of Holies, inside the temples to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. And the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, or 30 feet. If you do 20 times 18, 18 inches divided by 12, you get that, you get 30 feet. And so he overlaid it with pure gold and overlaid the altar of cedar. And so Solomon overlaid the inside of the temple with pure gold, and he stretched gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. The whole temple he overlaid with gold until he had finished it, all the temple. Also, he overlaid with gold the entire altar that was by the inner sanctuary. Speaking of the altar of incense, right, at, right in front of the Holy of Holies, so inside the, the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. So in this 30-foot cube, or holy of holies, he created these cherubim. Now, one thing you have to understand is, you remember the Ark of the Covenant. It was a gold box, basically, right? And in it was the, the, two, uh, the t two tablets of the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger, right? I'd love to get a hold of that and take a look at that. Because there's going to be no chisel marks, do you understand? No chisel marks when God writes, <laughs> okay? But, so the, the two tables of stone are there, and then the mercy seat on top is built of all one piece with gold cherubims overlooking these angels with their wings over, looking in, looking down upon the mercy seat where the high priest would offer blood once a year on the Day of Atonement. But they were looking at that mercy seat. Now Solomon, when he builds this grand and glorious temple, he puts the Ark of the Covenant there, and it has the wings of the cherubim already because it's part of it. But now he's going to have these two cherubim, one on the left, one on the right, 15 feet tall, made of, uh, uh, what was it, um, 
uh, olive, olive wood. He's made it of olive wood. And then he's going to cover that with gold. And the wings are going to span 15 feet. They're going to be 15 feet tall. And the wings are going to go over 15 feet right over the Ark of the Covenant, which has another set of cherubim looking down on the mercy. Everybody's looking at the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So then he set the cherubim inside the inner room and they stretched out the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of one touched one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. And their wings touched each other in the middle of the room where the Ark of the Covenant was. So the Ark of the Covenant was between the cherubim. And, um, and again, if you read Exodus chapter 25, it talks about this Ark of the Covenant. It's a separate piece of furniture which we know is in there. And why is this such a big deal? You know, you think about... The, these cherubim all looking in on the mercy seat. They're looking in. Their wings are over like this, and they are looking at that place where blood was shed, where blood would be offered once a year on the Day of Atonement by the high priest. Why is that such a big deal? Do you remember when we were in John chapter 20 recently? It says in John chapter 20, verse 11, again, remember how I've been talking about types? Types? I've been talking about that tonight, right? Well, in John chapter 20, verse 11, it says that Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb weeping on the resurrection morning. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb and noticed what she saw. She saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the foot, at the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. So what picture do you picture in your mind right there? Any Jew would get it. The body of Jesus, bloody and broken, in between where it was before he rose. And now these two cherubim. Who's the mercy seat? Jesus. Once and for all, taken for us. Sin once and for all dealt with on that. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why the type is so important. Do you see that? So even back in the Old Testament, God was making sure this type was well established. So he's very... Serious about types, and that's why Moses had to pay the price of not being able to go in because he broke the type that God had told him to do. If he had just obeyed God, he would have done that perfectly. But God wasn't, his hand wasn't shortened because of Moses' anger. In his grace, he still allowed the water to come out, even though he whacked it twice in anger. He still allowed the water because of his mercy and grace. But he said, Solomon, or Moses, I was establishing something here, and I know you don't understand it. And thank God it's all written for us in Exodus 17 and Numbers 20 because we see the type. He was stricken once. Just hit the rock once. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Just hit the rock once. Strike it once because that's all that needs to happen. You don't need to continue to crucify Christ every single Passover or every single, you know, it's not the, you know, we do it in commemoration or in memory, but we're not doing it literally, right? He died once. That's why when we take communion, we don't have some kind of, you know, box that we put the thing in and do some kind of, you know, smoke and mirrors and the very body and blood of Christ coming to you. And then they come out and give it to you, the very body and blood of transubstantiation. It's not true. It's heretical. The sacrifice of the Mass, and I'm sorry if you're Catholic or if there's Catholics watching, but it's heretical. The Bible tells us he died once and for all. And to make it look like you're sacrificing Christ over and over again, you're wasting your time and you're going against the word of God. You have to live with that. <laughs> get right with God. Repent. <laughs> your heart may be right, but get into the word of God and find out what it says. Don't believe what some priest tells you. Find out what the word of God is. If he's not reading you to the word of God, you better leave. Leave and run out if he's not sharing with you the word of God. If you go to any church and they're not reading to you the word of God, run out. Because my opinion on anything doesn't matter. But this matters. And what I'm sharing with you, we're looking at in the Bible, aren't we? That's important. So I know I'm running a little bit late. We're, we're almost finished here. So thanks for your patience. So it was, again, a type. These cherubim, these 15-foot cherubim overlooking the mercy seat, a picture of Christ in his burial, of the, the, the bloody lamb of God as he was wrapped in those cloths, 
looking down upon that. And notice verse 28 in, back in our text tonight in 1 Kings uh, 6. Also, he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Think of how beautiful this is. And then he carved all the walls of the temple all around, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries, with carved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. And the floor of the temple he overlaid with gold, both the inner and the outer sanctuaries. And think of how this must have looked. I can't, I, I gotta say this. The lampstands on the left side, as they're, they're, the lamps are, and Solomon put 10 of them in there, I believe. And they're all burning. And can you imagine the light and the reflection and how that must look in there? It would blow your mind. It would inspire reverence. If it doesn't, then you're not breathing. You're probably dead if it doesn't do something to you. Yes, glory. And it all represents the Lord. And so... um, For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lentil and the doorposts were one-fifth of the wall. The two doors were of olive wood, and he carved of them figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers, overlaid them with gold. And he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So for the door of the sanctuary, he also made doorposts of olive wood, one-fourth of the wall. And the two doors were of cypress wood. Two panels comprised one folding door, and two panels comprised the other folding door. And then he carved cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers on them, and he overlaid them with gold, applied evenly on the carved work, and he built the inner court with the three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. And in the fourth year, notice, here it is again, in the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And then in the eleventh year, In the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its details according to all its plans, and so he was seven years in building it. More specifically, seven and a half years. He built that. And why is this temple so significant? Well, number one, it's a symbol of God's presence with his people. It was their center of worship. It was a reminder of the seriousness of sin and God's mercy certainly at the altar where they would burn the offerings and sacrifice. It prepared the people for the true focus of the temple, Jesus Christ, and it was a place of prayer. And remember that the tabernacle and the temple were copies or shadows of heavenly things. The very throne room of God right now somehow has some semblance of what was at the the tabernacle, and what is now at the temple. In fact, the tabernacle and the temple, the only difference between the two of them was basically all the same furniture was in there. Um, you know, in the, in the tabernacle, you walk in, and, um, well, when you're in the outer court, you have the, the, the altar, and then you have the laver, where after they sacrificed and burnt the offering, they would wash. And then you go into the temple, and immediately on your left would be the lampstand, the menorah, and then on your right side would be the table of showbread. Right directly in front of you would be an altar of incense where they would burn incense constantly. There'd be a, a very thick wall of, 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 of drapes, basically. And on the other side of that would be the Ark of the Covenant, which no one could go in but once a year, and only the high priest. And so... And the only only difference between that and Solomon's temple was Solomon made it bigger and he added more lampstands and more tables of showbread, but there was one altar of incense. And right beyond that, beyond those doors that we read about, was the Ark of the Covenant. And these two 15-feet gold cherubims made of olive wood overlaid with gold going in were looking looking upon it. I mean, the whole thing is just wow. And we'll say this and then we'll finish. In Exodus, when he made the tabernacle, God gave to Moses very specific instruction. He says, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you, that, it, that, that is, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings, so shall you make it. Why was that such a big deal? Well, in Hebrews, it gives us the answer. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one, speaking of Jesus, also have something to offer. For it was, 
For if he were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, and and God is speaking to Moses, he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. So all of these things weren't just happenstance. It wasn't like David, you know, giving the plans, the blueprint to Solomon. He wasn't just making this stuff up. No, God gave it to him. He gave it to him. He gave him the blueprint. And David says, here, son, here's the blueprint. I can't make it, but I can get all the materials for you, but here it is. Everybody help him. Everybody, far and wide, all throughout Israel, everybody give an offering and, and let's get this done, you know. And that's what he did. And that's what he did. It's a pattern of things of the heavenlies, the very throne room of God. I love that. You know, there's nothing, and, and what, what encourages me about this chapter and, and the types that we saw in it already is just to know that the Bible's filled with these things. And it's not by coincidence either. These things are here for our learning and understanding. They, they have meaning There's meaning. God doesn't waste paper. He doesn't waste papyrus. He doesn't waste anything. It's all there for a reason. And what does it do? All of it points to who? It all points to Jesus. Think about it. The very tabernacle, the the instruments, the the pieces of furniture in in the temple, the lampstand, the light of the world. He's the light of the world. The bread, the showbread. He's the bread of life. The altar of incense, you know, he intercedes for us. All these things, even the very sacrifices themselves, all go back to Christ. Leviticus, everything goes back to Christ. It all goes back to him. It's all about him. Didn't that what, isn't that what Paul said? And, uh, and I'll just finish with this because I'm a nut and I've got to read it. It's in chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, verses uh, 16. Paul says, For by him, Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, He's ahead of all of us, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Isn't that wonderful? Everybody, I know you're tired. You're like, when is he going to stop? Well, we're going to stop now. But everybody smile, that in all things that he might have the preeminence. Yes, that's what it's all about. So let's stand and let's pray and get out of here. (laughs) Oh, what a joy, isn't it? Isn't the word of God wonderful? I just love it. I love it. I love it. Father, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for these types, Lord. Thank you for these things in your word. And Lord, as we journey through uh, kings and just see Solomon's uh, reign and uh, the glory of it and also the big mistakes that he made, Father, may we learn from these things, Lord, and never think that we're somehow above, Lord, but rather we are just cut of the same cloth. Unless we're, unless we're obedient to you, Lord, we're going to fall. We're going to fall and over and over again. So, Lord, help us to be obedient children. Lord, help us to hear at once and be willing to obey and not test you, not, not provoke you, Lord. Uh, cleanse our hearts, Lord, and, and just bring us to your, to your, and just bring us into your likeness. Lord, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.